This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Susan David. Susan David is an award-winning psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, co-founder and co-director of the Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital, and CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology, a boutique business consultancy. She's the author of the number one Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. I'm so happy to have Susan David as a guest on Insights at the Edge, because I think the topic she addresses, emotional agility, is such an important topic in our time. How we become fluid and learn to embrace every emotional experience that we have. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Susan and I spoke about not labeling emotions as negative, but the value instead of describing them as tough or difficult, and how we can work skillfully with tough emotions without bottling or brooding. We talked about the importance of getting granular with our emotions, what Susan calls emotional granularity, and how this ability to accurately articulate our emotional experience allows us to relate to ourselves and others more meaningfully. We talked about a few ways we can teach our children to increase their emotional agility and their ability to move through tough emotions. We also talked about the problem with positive thinking. According to Susan, it just doesn't work and how chasing happiness does not deliver the same results as focusing on what leads to fulfillment. And finally, we talked about a quote from Susan's work on emotions, discomfort is the price of a meaningful life. Here's my conversation with Susan David. Susan, I'm thrilled to have this chance to talk to you about emotional agility. You have a PhD in emotions. I think a lot of us feel like we're in kindergarten when it comes to working with our emotions. <laughs> so uh, let's get started. First of all, how do you define emotional agility? Well, firstly, I'm so grateful to be with you and speaking with you. Um, the way that I think about emotional agility is that it is approaching our inner world with an orientation that is courageous, uh, curious, and compassionate. And I can deconstruct what I mean by those later. And yet still taking action that is concordant with our values. So what this allows us to do is to have any number of troubling thoughts, emotions, or even stories 
and yet still managing to act in ways that serve how we most want to live as human beings. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned that for a lot of us, you know, having a PhD in emotions seems like a long Mm -hmm. journey to make. And even when I, I hear a word like emotional agility, I think for a lot of people, there's a sense that we get lost in our emotions. They overwhelm us. Maybe we spin around having the same repetitive thoughts about a difficult challenge in our life. So help me understand how we move, and maybe this will involve being courageous, curious, and compassionate, from kind of being in a swamp, an emotional swamp, to being agile. So I think that's such an important question. Um, You know, the way that I think about emotional agility and its real-world impact is that how we ultimately deal with our inner world, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories drives everything. It drives how we love. It drives how we live, how we parent, and how we lead. So how we navigate this inner lives of ours really dictates so much. And this becomes a fundamental skill set, whether you are a parent or whether you are a leader in an organization or both um, or, or any of the above. And really, I think a core part of emotional agility is that we live in a world that has a very particular narrative about emotions. And that narrative often goes something like this. There are positive emotions and negative emotions. There are good emotions and bad emotions. When you have a bad emotion, you need to push it aside. You need to be positive. You need to have a good attitude because what you think and what you feel attracts your reality. And what we know from the research is that not only is this orientation not supported, but that actually it lands up being counterproductive. That when people have a feeling that they've got a good emotion or a bad emotion, what it can often lead to is them becoming judgy about their so-called bad emotion. I feel angry. I feel sad. I feel anxious. I shouldn't feel these things. It often results in them doing what I call bottling emotions. So trying to push those emotions aside. And what we know over time is that it is not a effective recipe. Uh, people who do this or people who have this orientation towards the emotions in this way become lower in terms of their resilient. Uh, people, people who have this orientation towards their emotions in this way become lower in terms of their resilience. They actually become less happy and less positive over time. And they're unable to pursue their life in a way that's concordant with their values. So the first part of emotional agility, and it's not the full story, the first part is really letting go of the struggle that so many of us have with our emotions in which we somehow say, you know, these are good or bad, they're positive or negative. And recognizing instead that our emotions have evolved to help us as a species to survive, to adapt, and to communicate both with the world around us as well as with ourselves. And so when we cut off these so-called negative emotions, we actually lose our capability uh, to be effective and to be adaptive. Mm -hmm. In your book, Emotional Agility, one of the things I really liked was you talked about not using the language of negative emotions, but that we could call 
emotions that are challenging, tough emotions or difficult emotions and just get rid of this word negative. And I thought that was very helpful as a language switch. Yeah, you know, it's okay. interesting because when we start saying that something's negative, it's an immediate judgment call. Uh, yeah. And it automatically in our lives implies that this is somehow a bad thing. Whereas when we recognize that we're going through a tough time or we're having a tough experience here, what it starts to also do is starts to acknowledge our humanity and our, our self and our compassion in the process and starts to help us to try to dig through and undercover a little bit or uncover a little bit of what it is that we can learn from that experience. And this becomes, as it turns out, critical in the emotional agility and becoming emotionally agile. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned that our emotions exist in our body, mind, and our humanity to help us survive and adapt, that there's been an evolutionary function that emotions have played. Can you help people understand that? I think that's a very important insight. Yeah, so this is critical. Um, If we think about one of the emotional experiences that is most often seen as being a bad emotion, so think about something like anger. Um, we will often see this emotion as being, you know, it's, it's, it's bad and I shouldn't have it. And yet we tend not to get angry about stuff that we don't care about. Now, it doesn't mean that because you feel angry, you've got a right to feel angry. You should act on the anger and that you are right and the other person's wrong. But what it does indicate is that you are feeling angry and that this is something they care about. And so often beneath our most difficult emotions are signposts to things that we care about, our values. It may be that you turn on the news and you feel a sense of rage and anger rise inside you. And that might be a signpost that uh, equity or fairness or justice is important to you. Or you might be angry because of the way you're being treated in an organizational context And that might be a signpost to you that collaboration is important to you and you feel you're being sidelined. And so beneath this difficult emotion is so often a signpost to something that we value. Now, it doesn't mean we need to act on the emotion, but when we understand the value that's underneath it, what it does is it allows us to then shape our environment and shape our actions in ways that are adaptive. So we can start saying, well, You know, are there ways that I can be bringing myself differently to the meeting so that I'm not sidelined? Or is this the right organization for me? Or, you know, there are a whole range of questions that we start asking ourselves when we become curious about the emotion and when we start surfacing the value that's underneath it in a way that really enables us to create something of our lives that feels sustainable and connected and and authentic. Now, in terms of this evolutionary view, it's very clear with something like anger, and I think it might also be very clear just intuitively to our audience with something like fear. You know, yes, I'm feeling afraid because something might attack me. But when we get into some of the other emotions, it's not as obvious to me. And I wonder if you could help me understand that. You mentioned in your book that different experts categorize emotions differently, but one categorization might be that there are seven basic emotions. And you include in this list joy, anger, sadness, fear, surprise, contempt, and disgust. And I noticed when I looked at something like contempt, 
I thought, huh, what's the adaptive value of something like contempt? So contempt, or even another one that often comes up is guilt. You know, what is the adaptive value of guilt? Contempt often allows us to understand or to see something that is different from our expectations. So different from what we think might be a um, moral or a just or an effective way of navigating something. And you might see a person doing this time and time again. And so we have a response to the person that starts to create a sense of like, gee, this is something that I see in front of me that's not helpful. And content is most often in relation to someone else. And that's not helpful and it's not what I want to be. And what this starts to do is it actually is a very, very important aspect of starting to shape our moral character, our sense of what's important to us. You know, experiencing and understanding what's beneath that emotion is just, you know, a critical um, input into then how we move forward. The same with guilt. A lot of people will beat themselves up over experiencing guilt. You know, the, the guilty parent is the most typical of this. And I, you know, I talk about in my book how I travel a lot for my work and, you know, I'll land up sometimes being in a hotel room and I'm away from my children and I'm working and I feel guilty. Now, the function of guilt is that it allows us to reorientate our actions in ways that may be able to bring us closer to what it is that we want in our life. So if I feel guilty, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad parent, that that guilt is fact. But what it does start signaling to me that my children and parenting in a way that feels present is important to me and that I may be doing less of it at the moment than I would like to. And so being able to connect with that signal that's underneath that allows me then to maybe shape you know, future engagements in a way that brings me more to home or it allows me when I'm connecting with my children to be more present on the telephone rather than doing something else at the same time. That guilt is really important. And the function of guilt at a societal level is that it's, it's a moral emotion in many ways. You know, when you feel guilty about something that you've done, that that guilt actually helps us as a society to often have a sense of like, this isn't the way we want to be. We don't want to treat people in this particular manner. It's a very, very powerful way of enabling people to survive and thrive at a societal level. What's your advice for people who are trying to decode the signposts of whatever it is they might be feeling? How do you suggest people start really understanding the messages? So the first aspect to this is what I touched on a little bit earlier, which is really giving way to the idea that there's good and bad and kind of just drop the rope and start saying to yourself, you know, what is it that I'm feeling? Uh, This is this idea that, you know, when we show up to our emotions in a way that is compassionate and in a way that's curious, you start surfacing a whole lot in terms of what that signpost is, then if you came to that emotion with, I shouldn't feel this, it's a bad emotion. So being able to be uh, compassionate and curious around that emotion becomes a really important aspect of showing up to emotions. But we also know uh, from the research on emotions that there are other really important 
ways that we then move forward with that information. So for instance, um, a lot of times when people experience something, they may use very broad brushstrokes to describe what they're feeling. So an example that I talk about in my TED talk is how people often will use the word stress. You know, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. And we'll, you know, use this often day in and day out to describe what our experience is. But if you take that experience of stress and you start trying to become a little bit more nuanced, you know, what is the thing that I'm calling stress? Because there's a world of difference between stress versus disappointment or stress versus that knowing dread of, I'm in the wrong career. So what we know is that when people label their emotions in a more granular way, what's called emotion granularity, that this is actually critical to being able to surface your values because you're digging deeper and you're starting to say, I'm disappointed, why am I disappointed? Or this dread is X, why have I got this feeling? And so what emotion granularity does is it allows us to understand the exact cause of our emotions and it also allows us to start um, activating what's called the readiness potential in our brains. Uh, there's research that shows that when we are more granular, there's literally change at the motoric level that allows us to start setting goals and moving forward in effective ways. So just, you know, this showing up, this starting to perspective take, uh, this labeling moves us into the space where we are no longer immersed and stuck in our emotions. Uh, and of course, there are other ways we can do this as well, but rather we're starting to take more of an observer perspective of our emotions and say, what is this emotion telling me? You know, what am I trying to surface here? What's at stake here? What's important? And from that, we can um, very frequently, most frequently, come up with a sense of why it is that we're having this particular reaction. Mm -hmm. Now, just in a confessional moment here, just briefly, mm -hmm. for me, the emotions weren't very welcome in my home. We moved to thinking and just kind of, pushing our way through and, and being effective and responsible no matter what. And what we were feeling wasn't given a lot of language or a lot of attention. So when you say something like emotional granularity, what lights up in me is that's a skill I want and not a skill that I was taught. Now, there are some books that sounds true, The Language of Emotions by a woman named Carla McLaren and other people who help us start developing this language of emotions, but for people who are new to this idea of, I want to develop this language to be able to pinpoint and be articulate, emotional granularity, how do they do it? So, yeah, that's a great question. And I've got, uh, I speak about this at some length in my book. And I've also, if people are interested, I've got an article that I wrote for Harvard Business Review that we can link to in the show notes, which really describes some of this in a lot of detail. But I can give you an example, which is a very, very simple example, but it's a practical example. I was working with a client. Uh, this individual is a uh, consultant, and I was working with him, and I became friends with him over time. And he really, really struggled in the space. And so what he would tend to do, and it describes a little bit about what you are alluding to, but in a different context, is he would describe everything as angry. So he would say, I'm angry with my team. My team's angry with me. Why my wife's angry with me? Everything would be angry. And I started to say to him, you know, 
when you see your team is angry, then there's no space for anything else. What if your team is actually concerned? What if they are anxious? You know, then you've got a different story that's starting to be generated and a story that maybe is more expansive or more helpful. So maybe what we do is we start saying the first emotion that we're experiencing or the first emotion that we're saying it is, is angry, but what are two other options? So we just started to play this game of, okay, it's angry, but what are two other options? And sometimes I would literally print out a list of words, emotion words in Google and presented to him and say, what else is the team feeling? You know, they're feeling disappointed or they're feeling let down or they're feeling. So we started this process and over time I became very good friends with him and he invited me for dinner one night and his wife was there and she completely unsolicited described how this had created the most dramatic shift in their relationship because she said to me that sometimes there would be instances where he would come home from work and he would see her and he would assume that she was angry because she was maybe not speaking to him or um, that she was angry because, you know, she wasn't engaging with him in the way that he wanted. And yet when he started to dig a little bit deeper and they started to have these conversations about, are you angry or what are two other options? She was able to say, actually, I feel unseen or I feel unheard or I feel like you're jumping to a solution. And so this is a very, very simple strategy, which is just what are two other options? It doesn't necessarily matter at this point, is the label the right label or the wrong label, or is it the most accurate label? All we're doing is we're starting to move into the space of what are other options here? And in that, we start to actually finesse and hone our capability in this area. Now, I mentioned, Susan, that in my own upbringing, emotional granularity and the languaging of emotions in a nuanced way wasn't taught. What would we need to do to teach children, whether it's parents or educators, the language of emotional granularity from the ground up? So this is such a, an important question. Um, a lot of what I you know, talk about in my book and, and a lot of what I think about is the necessity of emotional agility when it comes to raising children. Because the first two aspects that I've spoken about are this kind of showing up and then the stepping out, which is this more observer perspective. But the other aspects that I talk about in the book um, are about walking your why, becoming very values-oriented and becoming clear about your values, and then also making tweaks and changes to your everyday habits that allow these values to surface more robust and practical ways in the work that you do and in your life. And this, of course, is a critical thing for children. Um, you know, we know that depression is now the leading cause of disability globally, outstripping cancer, outstripping heart disease. And we are seeing rates of depression and anxiety and suicide increase in very young children in ways that are pretty shocking. And so what becomes really critical is this whole skill about helping children to become comfortable with discomfort because they are moving into a world that is changing and complex and that their capability in this area actually becomes an essential 
a cornerstone to their ability to thrive in the future. So the kinds of things that I think are critical is, you know, often with very good intentions as parents, when our children come home from school and they're upset about something, you know, the child might say something like, mommy, no one would play with me. And your heart breaks because you never wanted your child to experience that rejection. And so often what we do then with great intention is we jump in and we take away or try to take away that difficult emotion. You know, don't worry, I'll play with you. Um, I'll phone the mingled parents. We'll organize a play date. You know, we, we try to um, protect them from that experience. And we do it with great intention. But what this teaches our children is that, number one, difficult emotions are to be feared. Number two, some emotions are bigger than they are. You know, it needs someone else coming in and saving them from the emotional experience. And then number three, they don't learn critical skills that we know are essential to resilience and essential to uh, lifelong thriving. And of course, I'm not being causal here. You know, if someone's experiencing depression, it's because they were raised, you know, without this. Yeah. But what we do know is that these are fundamental skills. And so the first thing that I would say is be super aware as a parent, and I don't do this perfectly by any stretch, but be super aware as a parent of trying to protect your child in a way that takes away that emotional experience and doesn't allow them to sit with the emotions quite a little because what happens when a child is allowed to sit with their sadness? They learn, number one, this is what sadness feels like. Number two, they learn, gee, this sadness isn't going to kill me. Number three, they learn something that is fundamental, which is sadness passes. Emotions are transient. And they also learn that they are able to do things that help them to move on from their sadness. And this is learning that doesn't happen if we jump in. So what I would say is, number one, allow your child to feel their sadness. Um, number two, try to help them to label their sadness. So what is it that you're feeling? You know, Are you feeling rejected? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling... Um, lonely, you know, what's going on for you? We know as young as two and three years old that children are able to develop the skill. So when you're reading picture books to your kids, what is Jack in the book feeling? Why do you think he's feeling this way? These are questions that help our children to develop the skill set. Then the third part, and I think this is just a, a critical part, is um, when we are with our children who are experiencing a difficult emotion, that emotion, again, is a signpost of something that they care about. So imagine your child says, Peter didn't invite me to his birthday party. Now, I'm not going to invite him to mine. That child is hooked by the emotion. They're using their emotion in a way that doesn't allow space, it doesn't allow thought, and it doesn't allow intention. Now, if we start saying, well, what are you feeling about this? And then also... Let's label the emotion. And what this emotion is signaling to you is that friendship is really important. So we can then start asking our child, what does being a good friend look like to you? Um, 
you know, what does friendship look like? What are the important qualities of friendship? Now, why this is important is because so often, again, what we do as parents is we'll jump in and we'll say, you know, but you've got to invite him to your birthday party because you've invited everyone else. And we tell our children what to value. But when you step back and you say, what is your being upset signal to you about what's important? And how do you want to bring yourself to friendship? We do something absolutely critical for our children, and that is we start to develop their moral character, their sense of character, their sense of integrity. And this, you know, is is essential as children grow up because, of course, when we face with peer pressure, we need to be able to separate what I'm feeling, which is I might be tempted to take these drugs, from what I actually do. We need to be able to label and understand what the temptation is. And we also need to have the moral and and fortitude and the character separate from what our parents are telling us because they're not going to be there at that age to decide who we want to be in this situation. So those are some very practical strategies that are essential to helping children uh, with emotional agility. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you mentioned depression as the number one disease of our time, the number one illness of our time. But you said, let's not make any simplistic connections here. But how do you see our inability as a culture to work with tough and difficult emotions and labeling them as negative as being part of this epidemic of depression? What do you see as the connection? So depression, of course, is complex. They're complex biological, psychosocial, and other aspects um, that that impact on depression and the overall experience of depression. But I do think that um, when we think about difficult emotions, life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. Um, you know, we are all young until we are not, or healthy until we are not or in relationships that are loving until that relationship is no longer working. And so the need for us as a society to be able to have skills to deal with the world, not as we wish it to be, but as it is, become fundamental. And I think, you know, in a way that this, again, very well-intentioned drive to positivity actually paradoxically undermines our resilience because what it does is it leads us to ignore, uh, not learn from our emotions, not become comfortable with difficult emotions. And so I think it, it plays a role. You know, when we look at children, for instance, who become less resilient over time, we know that there are often typical ways of dealing with emotions, either bottling those emotions, pushing them aside, 
or brooding on those emotions in which we dwell on them and dwell on them and they become fact. And so the child's not able to develop more of an observer, courageous, curious perspective about emotions and move forward with those emotions productively. So I think that that there is actually a undermining of resilience and an ill effect in our mental health that comes about through this societal view of emotions. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this tendency to brood. It's easy for me to understand how if we just bottle our emotions, they're just stuck inside of us and that's not helpful or useful. We have to show up and face them and work with them. But if we're brooding, what's the difference between reflecting, thinking, trying to understand and brooding, going over it, really trying to understand what's underneath it? What's the difference between contemplation and brooding? So the characteristic of brooding, and it's interesting because bottling and brooding, pushing emotions aside versus dwelling on them, they look completely different. You know, they look like they're opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet when you examine the research on the long-term impact of these ways of dealing with emotions, the results are similar, which is that both bottling and brooding um, lead to lower levels of well-being, um, heightened likelihood of experiencing uh, difficulties around depression as well as other aspects of mental health and wellness. Um, there's an increment and, and an impact on relationships because, of, of course, when you push emotions aside constantly, it's difficult to connect with people in an authentic way. But when you brood on your emotions and you're so stuck in your own world, it also becomes difficult for the relationship because there's not a kind of give and take of emotional experience. So they look very different, and yet the impact is the same. And I'm not suggesting for a minute here that one should never dwell on emotions or never bottle emotions. You know, if I'm going in for a job interview and I've had a very difficult experience the day before, I may want to just push that emotion aside and go for my job interview. I'm not going to go for my job interview and be, you know, on the table crying because this is how I feel. So what I'm talking about here is a tendency that we have to deal with emotions in one or another way. What is the difference between brooding on emotions versus healthy contemplation? Brooding on emotions is quite literally this experience of going over and over and over emotions in a way that doesn't arrive at any sense of insight. So there's no move to labeling the emotion. There's no move to understanding the value that's underneath the emotion. And there's no move to understanding what do I need to do in this situation that isn't driven by my emotions. You know, I'm unhappy with my boss and I'm going to have it out with him. But rather that's driven by my values. You know, I'm understanding I'm unhappy in this situation with my boss. What do I need to do that's values aligned? When we are ruminative, when, we, when we're brooding on our emotions, often we get stuck in this loop. There's a lot of talk that goes on in the loop. There's a lot of... Um, you know, almost playing things out in our mind, but it's from the position of the emotion. You swamped and you're seeing the world from the perspective of your emotion. So the difference lands up being that, that um, you know, when people are moving into healthy contemplation, they're usually trying to ask themselves, what is the emotion telling me? Why am I feeling this? What value does it connect with me? Um, what do I need to do in this situation? What makes sense here? How does this action serve me? 
those are the kinds of questions. And interestingly, there's brooding, but there's also co-brooding. Co-brooding is when you like really upset with your mother-in-law, for instance, and you go out with your best girlfriend and you have a big vent over lunch about your mother-in-law. Now, you might think, well, you know, this this is just me getting social support. But again, co-brooding is where we get so stuck in the vent. And what the research shows is that when you then go back into the situation with your mother-in-law, um, you are more likely to act out in ways that don't serve you. You're more likely to um, behave poorly and, and, you know, alienate the person, act in ways that, you know, are not connected with who you want to be. You feel better about your friend, but you don't necessarily um, move into the space of values concordant. And I think that this is a critical part of emotional agility, which is, you know, to use that wonderful Viktor Frankl idea that, that you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. When we hooked by an emotion, um, whether it's bottling or brooding, there's often no space between stimulus and response. I'm upset, so I'm going to do such and such. What emotional agility is about is it's about being able to create the space that then your actions become infused with values and choice. Now, Susan, you gave us a great example of feeling guilty about traveling so much with your kids mm-hmm. and not having so much time and how you came to a values-aligned set of actions in terms of really valuing the time that you do have with your kids and being present. I'm wondering if you can give another example of an emotion that perhaps has been tough or difficult for you, that maybe you became caught in bobbling or brooding, and how you were able to come through the other side with a values-aligned stepping forward. Yeah. So great question. I mean, I I grew up, I talk about this actually a bit in my TED talk, which is I grew up in apartheid South Africa. So I grew up in a country and community committed to denial, essentially, because it's it's denial that makes 15 years of racist legislation possible while people convince themselves that they're doing nothing wrong. And what I describe in my TED talk is how I grew up in this context and then um, at a young age, I was 15 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I described the experience of him dying and of me being bereft, but living in a world that basically expected me to be okay. So, you know, when you live in a world that says, if you've got cancer, just be positive, or if your parents got cancer, just be positive, you start kind of learning just to be okay, even if it is closing off a part of you. And so I described this like really, you know, intimate experience that I had with my own grief, this idea that I was okay, and yet back home we were struggling, and how I started to um, as a 15-year-old, you know, refused to accept the full weight of my grief and, and was binging and purging and really struggling with this emotional experience. And my eighth-grade English teacher handed out these notebooks with this invitation to write, you know, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And I started to write, I started to journal about my experience. And what I started to really connect with was 
the remarkable power of showing up into emotional experience and also, you know, being able to understand a little bit of my grief was signaling to me that I loved, you know, that I loved and I've lost that love, but I loved my grief was signaling to me how I wanted to be in the world, which was not this closed off, um, in on myself, self-abusive way of being in the world. And so this is, you know, this is a kind of experience that we have with grief, which is the idea that, you know, there's these stages that we've just got to go through. And if you're not going through the stage in a predictable way, something's wrong. And yet grief is unpredictable. And it's only when we show up to our experience and really try to kind of be with that experience in a way that is curious, courageous, and compassionate that we can learn from it. So that, that I think is, a, is an example. And for me, that came through writing in, in the technical sense. But more than that, it actually came from me being invited by this teacher to see myself, um, which is powerful. It's such a powerful thing. And I think we, in a world that is very focused on solution and output, we often deny ourselves this essential humanity, which is to see ourselves. In your book, Emotional Agility, you talk about the research of James Pennebaker about journal writing. And it was very compelling that even short amounts of journal writing, 20 minutes a few times a week, can make a huge difference. Can you share with our listeners what this research showed? Yeah, super, super powerful. And it's this, which is that... um, we imagine all of us that we have difficult experiences that we've gone through at some point. It might be a divorce or it might be a job loss or an illness with a child. All of us go through difficult experiences. And so James Pennebeck has started to ask this question, which is what is effective processing of emotion look like? And so what he does is a super simple experiment. He divides um, the people, the, the subjects in the experiment in two, the one group is the experimental group and they are asked to write just for 20 minutes a day for three days. That's all it is, 20 minutes a day for three days about an emotionally difficult experience, like an emotionally evocative experience. So that's the experimental group. The control group is asked to write about arbitrary stuff. In other words, they aren't going to their emotions. They're not processing emotions. They write about the cars passing on the street or the shoes that they're wearing. And again, they write for 20 minutes a day for three days. And what this research finds is that just 20 minutes a day over three days, six months later, when you look at people's um, physical health, they've been to see the doctor fewer times. Mental health, they're doing better psychologically. And that this writing even impacts on people's goal attainment. So in one study, which was remarkable, Individuals who had been employed in one organization for many, many years, but then were all laid off and retrenched, um, half of the people wrote, half of the people wrote about arbitrary stuff. And what they find is that the people who show up to their emotional experience and process it in healthy ways, that those individuals were rehired quicker than individuals who didn't. And, and not just by a little bit, it was, it was remarkable. And so really what this starts to drive to is Again, you know, what is a narrative that's 
supported in our culture versus what do we actually know about emotional health and emotional well-being. And what we know is that when we're going through difficulties, and it doesn't matter what that difficulty is, if we perceive it as difficult, when we show up to it in ways that are compassionate, we can learn from it, we can move forward, we can become uh, intentional and values connected. And that not doing those things actually undermines our resilience and undermines our ability to achieve the outcomes we want in our life. So just one question about doing this personal writing. You know, this is information I've heard before about the health value of journal writing. And yet I notice, and I don't think I'm alone here, that when it comes to going into some painful experiences and I think, okay, I'm going to write about them, I then come up with something else I'm going to do. Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate here, but, you know, not necessarily open the refrigerator, but go for a walk or something that doesn't feel as hard as picking up pen and paper, opening the computer and writing about this terrible, painful experience. I don't really want to go back into it and write about it, even though I know it will help me. So can you talk to that person who has some kind of big hurdle to get over in order to just do what sounds pretty simple, but feels really hard. Yeah, so the first thing that I think is really important is what we know from the research in this space is that it's not writing per se. Like there's nothing magical about picking up a pen and going, you know, that is just a a mechanism of doing so. But when we look at effective therapy or effective coaching or when you've got a wonderful friend who you're not venting with, but who really understands you and and gets you and can help you to work through this, the power and the, the the impact are the same. So there's nothing, you know, per se that is specifically about writing. Really what it is, though, it's about starting to put into language. Starting to put into language is what seems to be, you know, a powerful marker of these results. So I think, you know, the first thing that then becomes, you know, well, what do I do in the situation if I just am struggling to write is to not beat yourself up about it, but to rather do what works for you. So for me, I actually, you know, still do journaling, but I love, I love walking and I do my most effective thinking when I'm looking. But often what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, what is it that I'm feeling? Like, what is this thing about? I'm trying to label the emotions. I'm starting to understand, like, what is this value that is um, being attacked here or traversed here in a way that is, you know, really getting to me? And how can I move myself into a space that is more values aligned? And sometimes I'll even use perspective taking. So, you know, we know that often when we're experiencing difficulties, uh, we see things very much from our perspective. You know, what is the perspective that I have about the situation? Um, And I found this in my work in organizations as well as in individuals. It's it's really remarkable. You'll, You'll sometimes say to someone, so, you know, you're feeling really, really, really stuck in your job. What should you do? Like, what, what are the next steps for you? And the person will say, I don't know. I've got no idea. You know, I've got no idea what I should do. I'm absolutely stumped. And then sometimes you ask a question like, well, you know, if you were having a conversation with the person who you most trust in the world 
and who most cares about you, what do you think that person would advise you to do as next steps? And suddenly the individual says, well, I should do this and I should do that. And, you know, they have like five solutions and five suggestions because perspective taking, moving out of the space in which I just see myself into the space in which I'm able to see things from another perspective is so powerful. It's what underpins empathy. It's what underpins our ability to connect with an individual in front of me. And so when I'm walking, it's not necessarily that I'm sitting down with a pen and paper and journaling, but I'm definitely trying to go through a process where I'm not just stuck in this experience and the emotions are swirling about in my head, but I'm trying to come to it with some kind of process that allows me to say, what am I feeling? What's going on here? What do I need to do? What's values aligned? What serves me? What serves the outcome here? And Mm -hmm. that is, I suspect, as helpful than, you know, 11 p.m. journaling. Mm -hmm. Now, Susan, you mentioned that you grew up in apartheid South Africa and that that was an environment of denial of emotions and that that's part of what's informed the passion that you have for your work today. And I feel that throughout this conversation, there's been something sort of under the surface bubbling, which is connecting the work we do ourselves with our own emotional agility and the challenging times in which we're living in, where people are having a lot of intense emotional responses to the political landscape today to the challenges we have with environmental issues worldwide. There's a sense that our emotions are rising. And I I wanna give you the opportunity here to link directly the personal work of emotional agility with the challenging landscape of our times. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's increases in people's sense of anger, frustration, um, anxiety, we're definitely seeing that at all levels of society. And of course, when that happens, there's also very often an other that is created. You know, when I feel feel when I when I feel fearful, then I'm often doing that in relation to someone else. And so there's often an us and them that's created. And you know, to again come back to this idea that, you know, between stimulus and response there is a space and in that space is a power to choose. And in that choice is our, our freedom. We often, when we're experiencing um, anger, for instance, on the political front, you know, when I say show up to emotions, I don't mean that our anger is then the license to just do what we want and say what we want. You know, I can show up to my son's frustration with his baby sister and empathize with it and connect with it and see it without endorsing his idea that he gets to give her away to the first stranger that he sees in a shopping mall, okay? So there's a difference between being able to show up to our emotions versus treating our emotions as fact and as something that we need to act on. Because after all, who is in charge here? The thinker or the thought? And when we are most emotionally agile, it is the thinker that's in charge. So from a political perspective, you know, what we're able to do is we're able to recognize our anger, to see our anger for what it is, to understand our anger and to understand the values that that anger 
points to. And then our responses and our reactions are not driven by the anger, you know, so it's not a gnashing out and a you know burning of tires, but rather it's about saying, this is what my anger is telling me is important. What are things that I can do in my environment that are values concordant and that bring about the changes that are critical to me? You know, so this this idea that values are, you know, somehow these abstract concepts is something that I talk about in emotional agility, the idea that they're not abstract concepts, that values are qualities of action. You know, if I value health, I may have a choice as I walk into a cafeteria as to do I go towards the value, which is to pick up a piece of fruit, or do I go away from the value, which is to pick up the cake? And the same applies to values in the political sphere. You know, if if my value is one of seeing the other, or if my value is one of um, justice, what are things that I need to do in order to move that value forward within my community? And this is where this becomes really critical. Again, it's not the anger that's driving the action, it's the value that's driving the action. And so it's it's um, the way that we are able to bring the best of ourselves forward when we're able to mine the difference between how I feel in all my wisdom and how I want to act in a way that's values concordant. But you only get to the action if you are able to understand what the value is and what the emotion is that you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Now, Susan, before we end our conversation, there's just one more area I want to go into, which is, I think, as you know, Sounds True publishes a lot of programs that help people develop a connection to a spiritual dimension of being. And you've talked some about the power of having mindfulness, an observer mind. And I think that that's obviously so helpful in having a stimulus and then there's a gap before there's a response. But what I've also noticed happen a lot for people who are on a spiritual path is they can start wanting to always feel good. This comes back to what we were talking about before. Yes, this bias on positivity. And I wanted to hear more what you think the dangers are of this viewpoint. You know, I'm going to, if I'm having these repetitive, difficult, negative thoughts, I'll replace them with positive ones. Let's start there. I'm going to go for positive thinking because isn't that what spiritual people do? We think positively, right? So, yeah, it's really fascinating. Firstly, I think that um, being mindful and being able to notice our emotions for what they are, you know, notice emotions rather than seeing them as being factors is critical. Um, But really, the way mindfulness helps us to cultivate emotional agility is it helps to uh, create the space. So it helps us to not be so immersed in our emotions, but rather to be able to step out of our emotions in, in ways that we can then choose values concordant at. So I think that you know mindfulness plays a critical role, um, but it's insufficient 
in helping people to then be concordant in ways that they want to live. Because the other parts that come into this are values and um, habit change. And so these are other parts of the process that are critical. Um, but what's really interesting is the idea that I've had a so-called negative thought and I'm going to simply replace it with a positive thought. It doesn't work. Um, we've done fascinating studies on asking people not to think about something or to simply you know, push it aside for something positive. And what's really interesting is that when you ask people to do this, there's what is called amplification. So amplification is the idea that when you try to push aside difficult thoughts or difficult emotions, they actually come back. And in experimental studies, in one minute, you will have 40 instances of that thought popping back in your head um, when you try not to think about it. It's, you know, it's like that delicious piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator and you on a diet and you know that you cannot eat that chocolate cake. And so you push it aside, but what do you do? You think about it, you obsess about it, you dream about it, and all you want is the chocolate cake. So trying to minimize or push aside actually doesn't work. Uh, it, there's what is called a rebound effect. And this plays out in very, very interesting ways. You know, you might say, I'm really upset with my brother and I'm just not going to say X, Y, Z when he comes to Thanksgiving. And then what do you find? You find that something pops out of your mouth at the dinner table and, you know, chaos breaks loose. So it doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. And so this is where this noticing with compassion and with curiosity is really important and it's also where trying to understand our judgments about ourselves and our judgments that can actually engage us in a very unhealthy way of being where instead of saying, gee, I'm feeling upset about this thing, what is it that this upset is about and, and how can I navigate this effectively? Instead, what we might do is we might say, oh, well, you know, I'm happy, I'm happy in my job, at least I've got a job and I'm just going to keep going. Five years later, you're still unhappy in your job, pretending that everything's fine. And I've dealt with a lot of clients and worked with a lot of clients who've pushed aside their difficult emotions in the service of positivity. And what this stops them from doing is it stops them from being able to take courageous steps in their relationships. It stops them from being able to be authentic in their relationships. And it often keeps them stuck in situations that ultimately don't serve them in jobs or careers that don't serve them. So, yeah, it's a very, very powerful question. And I think it's a very powerful challenge to all of us to recognize that acceptance is the prerequisite to change. It's only when we are able to accept how things are and how we feel that we are able to move forward productively. And acceptance, very importantly, is not the same as passive resignation. It's not passive resignation. It's rather saying, this is where I'm at. This is how I feel. Now, with this understanding, what can I do? So here you are living an emotionally agile life. Would you say 
it's a happy life. It's a joy-filled life. Or would you say it's filled with all of the emotions and there's some happiness, there's some joy, but there's no bias towards happiness and joy. How would you describe it, Susan? I think that when people are more emotionally agile, and certainly from the research, is that they are more accepting of themselves and more compassionate of themselves. They are able to actually move forward towards their goals more successfully. And the reason that they do that is because they are more um, capable of dealing with the setbacks. They recognize that they're still going to love themselves even if they have setbacks. Basically, what they do is they create a space for themselves in which um, difficult emotions and difficult experiences aren't throwing them, they've got the capability to understand and move forward through them, whether they're an entrepreneur or whether you're a parent struggling with with parenting or struggling with the situation that your children are facing. And so emotional agility is really a process by which we are able to, instead of going through the motions of living a life day in and day out and then recognizing 20 years later, yeah, I drive a nice car, but it's actually not the car that I wanted. Well, I live in a nice house, but it's not, this isn't the life that I wanted. We're able to develop instead a greater lifelong correspondence with our own hearts, with our own understanding and with who we want to be in the world. And so, I, you know, I think that when we look at the research on emotional agility, what it allows us to do is to experience the context that life presents to be able to navigate those in ways that are curious and open-hearted and to be able to deal with the challenges that any chosen path will put in front of us, um, whether it's setbacks or failures or disappointments, um, but to be able to do that in a way that is, is thoughtful and intentional and values concordant. You know, that all sounds beautiful, deep, and meaningful, but I didn't quite hear the answer to the joy and happiness piece. Like, what would you say your life is like now in terms of joy and happiness? Well, so firstly, I should not say that I'm the kind of arbiter of living an emotionally agile life every second of the day. That's, That's definitely not, you know, but what I do have is I do have a, um, I mean, I, I am a happy person and I, I, like being happy, but I don't chase happiness. And I think that those are different experiences. I think if someone chases happiness, one actually sets up oneself for disappointment. Whereas if one is moving through life in a way that is um, open to what might happen, uh, curious about what might happen, but is also, you know, recognizing that 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 discomfort, um, the discomfort of raising a family or the discomfort that often comes about when you want to leave the world a better place, those kind of things can be meaningful. So from my perspective, from a personal perspective, I don't chase happiness, but I am happy. What I do focus on is I do focus on values and I do focus on meaning, which I think is very different from chasing happiness. You know, if you say to someone, chase happiness, what makes you happy today? Often the answer is a hedonistic answer. It's like, well, you know, I went out with my friends and I got drunk and I, you know, that might be the experience of happiness. 
But I think for me, it's much more about what is worthwhile. What's worthwhile isn't always happy, happy, um, but it, it feels worthy. It feels meaningful. It feels connected. And that's rather how I you know, want to be. Um, and and mm-hmm. as I say, like, it's not like I'm the kind of arbiter of the emotionally agile person. Of course, like, you know, I have arguments with my husband and my children and, you know, all the, all the human things because we are humans. And yet I think that when we let go of some of the assumptions that we have about what emotions are right and wrong and what we should feel and what we shouldn't feel, and we rather enter space into what I do feel and we're able to separate out what is the me versus what is the demands that everyone else is placing on me, then it's fulfilling. So the words that I would use are not happy. The, the words that I would use are fulfilling, meaningful, um, worthy, connected, joyful, yes, but I'm not chasing happiness. Beautiful. You know, I'm just going to end with a quote from your work, which I really, I wrote down, I thought this is a terrific quote. Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Is that lifting you up, listener? I hope so, in its own kind of weird, strange way. (laughs) Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. I've been speaking with Susan David, she's the author of the book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. Susan has also created a brief quiz you can take on your current ability of working with difficult emotions. You can access the quiz by going to her website, susandavid.com, and then at susandavid.com backslash learn. You can access this five-minute emotional agility quiz. Again, my thanks to Susan David for her important work helping us turn to, embrace, and learn from all of our emotions. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for being with us.